The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Let's get into Luke together. Um, I, I say welcome to Luke, but it's really welcome back to Luke. We're jumping in into chapter six because that's where we left off last time when we were in Luke, and we're going to be picking up right where we left off. Luke is an incredible book. It's one of four gospels. So if you open your Bibles to the New Testament, the first four books are what we call the gospels, Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these books were written by different people. Each of these books uh, were written differently with different emphasis. Each of these books were written in the personality and the style of the author who wrote it. Um, But each of these books share this in common. They all have the same main character. And they all tell the same narrative. They tell the story of the work in the person of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his teachings, his miracles, um, his death, his resurrection. They tell the gospel, which is why we have so called them the gospels, right? They tell this story of the good news of Jesus Christ, and Luke is no exception to this. That is our message of, of Luke. Um, And so when we look at the Gospels, one way to think about it is we have four different perspectives, four different eyewitnesses to the work and person of Jesus Christ for us to soak up and enjoy. And we get to do that with Luke as we journey through. So let me set the scene for us. Let me paint the picture. Um, We have Jesus who was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. He grows up. We read that he was born in in humble circumstances, a small stable in a small town. That's how he was born. We also read that his message, his story, was spreading quickly quickly. It began to spread. People began to to see him, and they were intrigued by him. Crowds were starting to follow him, and they were, listen to what this man is teaching. Look what this man is doing, and crowds began to come all around him in the early chapters of Luke. And it was in this moment, when the crowds were coming in, it was in this moment that Jesus calls his his disciples, 12 guys who were going to be his inner circle. His inner circle. He calls these guys out to give up everything they know to follow him. He calls them out not based on their impressive pedigrees, not based on their resumes, not based on their experiences, not based on how great they were. He calls them out simply because it was his plan to do it. He calls these men to himself. You would think that, Jesus, you were the son of of God. You're going to bring the kingdom of heaven here. You're the king of kings, lord of lords. At least, the least you could do is select a couple guys who are good and keep them around you, right? That's not what we see here. It's not how God works. In fact, um, I encourage you, if you ever have some time, 
a free moment. Take a moment just to consider Scripture, how often the Lord chooses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. I think about the guy who doesn't talk well being called and chosen to lead a multitude of God's people out of slavery. I, I think about the, the great persecutor of the church is the man that God calls to be the predominant church planter of the early church. I think about the shepherd boy, the last choice in his own family. God chose to be the anointed king of Israel and to take on and to take out the great giant. I think just a few chapters earlier in Luke of the crazy-looking man in the wilderness wearing animal clothing and eating bugs and honey, and that's the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. God has this way. In our case here in Luke, as he picks his disciples, it's the rough and the weird collection of fishermen and tax collectors and the like who would be Christ's inner circle. It's almost like God receives glory when he uses unlikely and broken vessels for his purposes. And that's what's on display here. He always has, he always will, which, by the way, is why you and I work so well in this whole grand scheme of things. This is why um, we are used. As unlikely as you may think you are, I promise you, you're just going to fit in really well with all the other host of unlikely people who have gone before you to be used by God. And here in this moment, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. We're getting to our text here in a bit, but in verse 12 of chapter 6, Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. So here's the scene that we're walking in. He's going to the mountain to pray, and this, this, he calls his disciples uh, together, these unlikely men. In verse 17, it says, and he, that is Jesus, came down with them, them there, the, his disciples, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great magnitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. As I said, the news of this, this man Jesus was beginning to spread was beginning to spread. Sick were getting healed. Lame were being healed. The blind, the broken, the possessed coming to Jesus, they were being healed. And this is the moment that all of the crowds hearing this are coming and they're surrounding him. And it is in this moment that Jesus looks eye to eye with his disciples, speaking where the crowds could hear, but speaking to his disciples, to those who were following him. Speaking to them, he begins to teach them, and he begins to teach them about a better way. He says, blessed are you who are poor, because yours is the kingdom. And woe to you who are rich, because you've received your consolation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. And woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Blessed 
Are you, when you're ridiculed because your name is going to be great in heaven, and woe to you when everyone speaks well of you? Jesus is teaching this new and this radical way. He teaches them to love their enemies. If you're looking back through this, love your enemies, pray for them and bless them. Be merciful because that's who your God is. He says, don't judge them. Instead, repent of your sin. He says, don't go looking around for the specks of sawdust in each other's eyes when you have a log coming out of your eye. And again, this teaching, just radical, radical teaching. And it's in this moment when the disciples are fixated on Christ, who's teaching them this strange and radical new way. They're hearing this, they're wrestling for what it means for them, and it's in this moment that we get to our text, three short verses. Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the, the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We're going to get right to the point this morning. Jesus here dismantles, completely dismantles two lies. Lies that are easy for us to believe today. Lies that many of us might be struggling with this morning. Lies that distort the gospel. Lies that must be continually called out, brought out, and exposed. And in this text, Jesus is going to dismantle two lies, and then he is going to give us a better way. So this morning, let's work through the two lies, and then we'll finish with the better way. Let's start with lie number one. Lie number one is the lie of legalism. The lie of legalism. Here's what legalism says. Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. So here's what you do. You want to be a good tree? Then produce good fruit. If you don't want to be a bad tree, then stop producing bad fruit. Start producing good fruit, and that makes you a good tree. Legalism leads us to think outside in. Outside in. Fruit to tree actions to heart. Legalism is about what we do and how we perform, what we produce. And we can see how we get there. We can see how you can get there. I mean, I want to be a good tree. What do good trees do? Well, they have good fruit, so I want to produce good fruit. I mean, Jesus says it, verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. I'm known by my fruit, right? I'm known by what I do. I'm known by what I produce. In this way of thinking, 
Our identity, our standing with God is based on our obedience to God, based on what we do, based on our works, based on our performance. In other words, according to legalism, according to this lie, the health of our tree is based upon how healthy our fruit is. The health of our tree is based upon how healthy how healthy is your fruit? Now, all throughout our time in Luke, all throughout um, our study through this fall, we're going to see Jesus is not friendly to this lie. Um, in fact, you're going to see it throughout all the Gospels and the way he deals with and addresses, confronts the Pharisees, Sadducees. This was kind of their, their, their gig, and you see him not holding back on this lie. I couldn't pass this up. I had to read one instance of when Jesus so lovingly and honestly rebukes this. This is from Matthew, and this is when he is rebuking the Pharisees. Listen to this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you hear it? Jesus says, woe to you who focus on the outward first. Woe to you who focus on looking and acting a certain way in order to try to earn something from your God or earn some standing before his people. You're a bit like a dead tree. I mean, dead. You can tell it's dead. You don't have to be a plant person to know that that's dead. You're like that tree duct taping really beautiful apples on your little dead limbs and thinking, I'm fooling them. I'm fooling them. You are not fooling your God. The problem with legalism, church, is that it is, in fact, the opposite of the truth. It's the opposite of the truth. See, the the health of the tree is not based on the health of the fruit. No, church, it's exactly the other way around. The health of our fruit is based on the health of the tree. The health of the fruit is based on the health of the tree. Clean the inside of the cup so the outside will follow. Where legalism is this outside-in work, the work of the Spirit on our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ is an inside-out work. It's the opposite. Where legalism is a fruit to tree, the gospel is a tree to fruit. Where legalism says obedience leads to acceptance, the gospel says acceptance and forgiveness is through the grace of Jesus Christ, and that fact leads us to obedience. 
It's opposite. It is, it is opposite. You don't have to obey rules to earn adoption. We obey because we have been adopted by our God and because we are God's children. Legalism is the opposite of grace. It tramples grace. It is the opposite of the gospel. Legalism is a lie. It is a lie. I was about to say a well-intentioned lie, but I'm not even going to give it that. It is a lie. And it's plagued us for thousands of years. Here's the reality. It is easy. It is easy, church, for us to read the Gospels, to read about these these guys, these Pharisees who really didn't have their act together. Say, look at them, foolish, foolish people. It's easy for us to look around and say, well, there's legalism. I see it in them. It's easy for us to do that and at the same time fail to see our own legalist tendencies. It's just like Jesus taught right before our text where, where we, we are really good at seeing, I, I think you have a little sawdust right here, a little sawdust in your eye. And while we're, we have this kind of log coming out of our eye and we don't see it, we don't acknowledge it, but man, we're able to spot it. Well, what I'd like to do before we move on to line number two is I'd like to just give us some questions that my prayer is that will help reveal in us some of these tendencies that might help. As I ask these, I just want you to think about them. I want you to ask yourself and reflect on them. Do you feel like you need to be on good terms with God before you come to him in prayer? Do you feel less loved by God on your bad days? And just as important, do you feel more loved on your good days? Do you withdraw from your church, your church community in times of struggle? While at the same time, jumping all in when things are good? During the times when you have it all together? Instead of regularly confessing your sin, repenting in prayer to God, do you only come to the Lord in prayer when you have all your ducks in a row? Do all the people around you only know the good? Only know the positive, only know the wins, only know the wonderful feed you have going on your Facebook of edited pictures. How about this one? Do you view pastors, church leaders, as being in some way morally superior? And as a result, their prayers being more effective than yours? Do you think God loves you less because of a certain sin in your life that you can't seem to kick? Or do you think God loves you more because you see less sin in your life compared to the others around you that you know? These are just a few questions. 
church that can help kind of reveal and expose a legalistic tendency in ourselves. Places where we may have begun to believe lies and we didn't even know we're there. Places where we're trying to take our dead limbs and duct tape fruit. It's a dead end. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be perfect. Outside in work does not work. There's only one who is perfect. There is only one who is good. And to believe the lie of legalism, to believe this lie is to trample on the gospel of grace. It is a lie. But it's not the only lie here. Let's move on. I want us to consider for a moment lie number two. Now, uh, this word is probably going to be maybe not familiar to to many of you, but um, one, it's good to grow our vocabulary together, right? But what what is going to be familiar is what this word means. I'm just giving you a label for it, okay? The second lie is lie of antinomianism. It's a doozy. Antinomianism. Antinomianism. It rolls off the tongue. If you just say it a few times, it rolls. This concept's not going to be new to you. It brings together two Greek words. The first one is anti, anti. The word meaning against, same way we use the English anti. If you're anti-smoking, means you are against smoking in your facility. If you are called anti-fun, that means that you are against fun, right? It's the same way we use it, so anti-anti. Second word is namas. Namas is a Greek word for law. So, literally taking these two, putting them together, anti-law, anti Law. So think about it like this. If, if legalism is the pendulum swinging way over here, antinomianism represents the pendulum going all the way to the opposite side, swinging all the way to the opposite direction. Here's the main idea, and this is going to sound spiritual when I say it. Since we have been saved by grace... Since our salvation rests solely on the completed work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I told you, it's going to sound good. Since we are not saved by our works, but saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Since that is true, we are no longer under the law. It's done. Because of that, in the end, yeah, we want to be good people, but it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't really matter ultimately in the end. Legalism and the law, that was old. It's given way to grace. And our works, we're not saved by them and they don't matter. To put it into the language of our text here in Luke, the fruit doesn't matter. You can have rotten, stinky fruit hanging off your branches. You can have that. It doesn't matter in the end because that doesn't save you. It never has. What does matter is that we're saved by grace. All right, church, let's be careful. Whereas legalism tramples grace, disregards grace completely, antinomianism 
cheapens it. The lie of antinomianism is that the grace that saves us doesn't also transform us and sanctify us. The lie here is that the grace that saves us does not then manifest itself in us. The lie of antinomianism is exposed all through Scripture. We're going to get to our text here in Luke, but let me show you a few before we get back here. I'll put them on the screen so you don't have to play Bible drill with me. Um, I want to consider Paul in Romans. I could have gone to a lot of places, but I'll start in verse 3. Paul here is talking about the fact, no one is righteous, no, not one. Then Paul proclaims that the righteousness of God in Romans 3 is now given to us by grace through faith alone. And right after making that statement, what does Paul do? Well, in verse 31, he says this, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So because we now have received the righteousness of God by grace through faith in Christ, we are now free to uphold it. We're free to live it. We're free to be obedient. We are free to bear good fruit. Think about a few chapters later, chapter 6. Paul asks it bluntly in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he doesn't leave us wondering. He gives us the answer, verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you hear it? How can someone who's been saved by grace through faith, transformed into a new creation through Jesus Christ, now continue to live as though you haven't? This is Paul's argument. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? One more, um, I, could inc- I, I could include a lot more, but I could not not include James. James chapter 2 probably says this with the most clarity. Listen to this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, do you hear it? James is clear. You're not saved by your good works. You are saved to good works. You are not saved by your good fruit. You are saved in order that you may produce fruit for the glory of God. With that said, let's look at our text in Luke. Luke 6, again, let's focus on verse 44. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs, they're not gathered from thorn bushes. That's a losing battle. Nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Jesus is saying a tree is known, a tree is recognized, made known by its fruit. The reality of what that tree is will show up, be made known by the fruit it produces. And Jesus says the same is true for the children of God. The same is true for my followers. We are known, we are recognized, we are made known by our fruit. The reality of who we are in Jesus Christ is made known by the fruit that we produce. Antinomianism is a lie. I had to read this. 
Charles Spurgeon is far more brilliant than I or any of us put together will probably ever be. Um, He gives this really helpful analogy for us to consider in this. Listen to this. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether it has apples or not, the apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. Now listen to this. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when springtime comes, there is no bud, when summer comes, there's no leafing, no fruit bearing, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit. You would say it is dead. And you're correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves would have made it alive, but that the absence of leaves is a proof that it is dead. Let me say that again. That's good. It's not that the leaves, it's not that the fruit make it alive, but that the absence of the leaves, the absence of the fruit, is simply a proof that it is dead. So too is it with the professor of the faith. If he has life, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root, but there is no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that he is spiritually dead. End of quote. Antinomianism is a lie like legalism, a lie that we continue to wrestle with today. So let me ask, just like we did with legalism, a few questions that may help us do a little heart work here. As I ask these, just ask and seek to answer them honestly in your heart. Let me start with just the most blatant one. Does your sin break your heart? Does your sin break your heart? Do you take sin as seriously as your God does? Now, I'm not asking if you walk around crippled by it, thinking, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible, I'm walking in shame. No, not asking that. What I am asking is, are you even bothered by it at all? Are you growing in your walk with Christ? Are you growing in godliness and holiness like we talked about in 2 Peter? Are you growing? I guess a better way to ask this question is, are you interested in growing? Are you even interested in pursuing holiness? Do you wish the church would not preach so much about sin? Instead, do you just wish that we would focus on grace? I mean, that's a far more inclusive message. Do you have people around you Christian community around you that regularly and consistently supports you in your sin, reinforces it for you. Have you stopped regularly confessing your sin and repenting in prayer to God? 
Have you noticed that your conscience has been seared far more than it once was? The things that wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought you would have been okay with now, they are normal. And you've seen your conscience being seared. If you sinned against another person, would you confess it to them? How about this one? Have you justified sin in your life with the excuse of, well, that's just the way I am? It's just who I am. Has it maybe gotten to the place where even it has become your boast? This is who I am. God is good, but this is who I am. Have you begun to believe that God's view of sin has lessened a bit, changed a bit, especially from what you see in Scripture, that cranky God in the Old Testament? It's a good thing he doesn't care about sin as much as he did back then. Have you begun to think that God's view of sin has, has shifted to be less serious? And because of that, have you stopped being burdened by sin? Church, these questions can help reveal, again, this tendency to believe this lie in our hearts. Legalism is a lie. Antinomianism is a lie. And there is a better way. Let's talk about the better way. The better way is what we will call gospel transformation. Gospel transformation. Let's read our text again. Remember with me, the disciples are gathered around Jesus. They're looking at him directly as he is saying this. He says, verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs, they're not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And then listen to verse 45. This is so rich. This is so important to understand. This is gospel transformation. Listen to this. Verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Church, legalism says, try really hard to produce good fruit, outside in. Antinomianism says, who cares about your fruit? Who cares? Jesus says, I am going to save you, and I'm going to give you a new heart, transforming you from the inside out. And out of the abundance of that transformed heart, you're going to produce good fruit for the glory of God. So to the legalist in the room, stop trying to fix the outside. Come to Christ just as you are. Let him transform your heart. Let him change you from the inside out to the antinomian. Realize that the grace that saves you from the punishment of your sin is the grace that transforms you and gives you freedom over that sin. It is for freedom you have been set free. Do not submit again to the, to the yoke of slavery, of sin. 
Here's the message of Jesus this morning. Come and let me transform you from the inside out. Let me transform your heart. Let me fulfill my word in Ezekiel 36. Here's what gospel transformation looks like, church. Let's read this together. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart In a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Church, I think too often we think of our salvation in Christ as this thing of, okay, good, I'll be saved later from all that judgment. I'll be saved from, justified from the hell. And yes, 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 amen to all of that. Praise God for that. But don't miss this. The gospel says yes to all of that. You are saved in Christ. There is transformation in the here and now. Don't miss the fact, church, that Christ saves you and does a work in your heart, giving you a new heart. The gospel says come just as you are. And be transformed, be given a new heart, be given the Spirit of God indwelling you, empowering you, and bearing good fruit. So that even when we obey, even when we produce good fruit, guess what? Even in that, our only boast is in the Lord. Because it is the Lord who did this in us and through us. It is the Lord who has done this through us. It is the Lord who made us new. Our boast is only in him. The call of our text this morning is not to try harder to be better, to try harder to produce fruit. It's not, the call this morning is not that it doesn't even matter the way you live. It doesn't even matter what you do. No, church. The call this morning is to come to Jesus, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to be transformed by his spirit. Come to Jesus and be given a new heart. Come to Jesus and be transformed to produce good fruit for the glory of God, to make him known. The call this morning is to come to Jesus and to realize that our gospel is an inside-out work, an inside-out by the Spirit of God work. So as we close together, I just want to read this, the truth of God's word one more time. Listen with me as I read this one more time. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We thank you that it is not based upon any work, anything that we could ever do, anything, any work that we could not do. It's not based on us or our merit, and we stand on that truth and fact, and we are grateful because if it were left to us, we would be justly condemned. And so we are grateful for your gospel that tells us 
that you sent your son to die for us while we were sinners. That Jesus gave us his perfection, taking on himself all of our imperfections so that we can stand before you holy and blameless in your sight. And we thank you for that. We thank you that our salvation does not rest on anything that we do or bring to the table. And at the same time, we also thank you, Lord, that you don't just save us for the then and there and the later, but Lord, you save us and you do a work in us in the here and the now, that you transform us from the inside out, that your spirit, your grace is sanctifying us, that your saving grace is a sanctifying grace. And we thank you that you have not abandoned us until the later that you are here with us now, that you care for us now, and that you have transformed us now. And so, Lord, we pray the truth of this scripture, that you would give us a new heart, that you would indwell us by your spirit. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this room who this is foreign to, I pray that you would continue to do a work in our hearts. Would you indwell us And even in this moment, would you transform us and sanctify us for your good and for your glory. And as you do that, our boast is in you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.